If you've got a Bible, you can open up to James chapter 1. We started last week a series working through the book of James, and this week we'll continue to plow through in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, and we'll read down to verse 4. So if you've got a copy of the text, you can turn there. I'll reference back to it several times. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together here right now. But in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, the apostle James writes these words. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, In 2004, many of you might remember, there was a massive earthquake that took place at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And that massive earthquake, which was like 9.1, 9.2 on the Richter scale, it was like the third um, most significant earthquake measured in recorded history that took place miles beneath the surface of the ocean. But that earthquake that took place down at the bottom of the Indian Ocean triggered a tsunami. And that tsunami was a massive wave, a tidal wave that rolled in upon the continents that surrounded the epicenter of that earthquake. Uh, And the, the, the... Scientists tell us that these, this tsunami, this particular tsunami that was triggered by that earthquake, um, destroyed coastal communities in Somalia, which was 2,800 miles from the epicenter of where that earthquake took place. 2,800 miles that wave built and it rolled. And so when it hit the coast of Somalia, there were 176 people that were confirmed dead. 136 people were missing. And over 50,000 individuals, 2,800 miles away from the epicenter of that earthquake, were displaced. That's power, isn't it? It's a massive amount of power. But the reality is we look back over the course of human history that there was another earthquake, perhaps we might call it a spiritual earthquake, that took place thousands of years ago in a garden where our first parents, who were tempted by Satan, took of the fruit that that God had prohibited them to eat, and they ate it. And that massive spiritual earthquake that took place thousands of years ago has created a tidal wave of effects that has rolled on throughout human history, throughout generation to generation of sin and of suffering and of sickness. It's a tidal wave that's affected every human being that has ever, has ever lived, does now live, or will ever live in the future. There is no one who is exempt or who is beyond the reach of this wave that crashes on the shore of Christians and non-Christians alike. Right? Your religious orientation doesn't exempt you from this tidal wave of sin or suffering or sickness. It crashes on the shore of both people who have first world problems, like most of us in this room, and people who have third world problems. It crashes on the shore of the lives of the rich and the poor corporate executives and the homeless. It crashes on the shore of the lives of men and women, young and old, both pastors and their parishioners, shepherds and sheep. It crashes on the shore of the lives of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. There is no one exempt from or outside the reach of this wave that continues to roll on throughout human history in the lives of every person who has ever lived subsequent to that fall that took place in the garden. And there's a tidal wave in this text as well. 
There's a tidal wave in this text, and some of you are living in the, you're either living in one of three places, you're either living at the crest of that wave as you're looking back behind you, and it's about to collapse on top of you, or you're living in the collapse of it as it's fallen already, or you're living in the wake of it, right? So you're either watching it loom overhead, or it's coming up from behind you, or you see it crashing down around you right now, or you're living in the wake of it as it's just passed through you. But there's a tidal wave in this text, because James says... There are trials. There are trials, right? And some of you are in the midst of a trial right now. Some of you are in the midst of sickness, or you're in the midst of suffering, or you're in the midst of consequences of sin that you have committed, or sin that has been committed against you. But you're in the midst of a trial, and that tidal wave continues to roll on throughout human history. And so this morning, as we dig into what James has to say, I think it would be appropriate to begin with what James has to say about trials and then how we should respond to them. Because every single one of us has either has faced, is facing, or will face this wave because it continues to roll throughout all of our lives. So what does James say about trials? First and foremost, what does he say about trials? A couple of things that he says about trials. First, James says that trials are inevitable. They're inevitable. I want you to notice what James says in verse, uh, in the text that we just read together, in verse 2, whenever he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. He doesn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you face trials of various kinds. James doesn't use a conditional reference there saying, there are some of you who are going to face trials and some of you who aren't going to face trials. Rather, he uses a temporal reference there. He says, when, not if. Trials are inevitable. They're inevitable. Now, some of you want to raise your hand with an objection right here at this moment because you want to say this. You want to say, right? But I am loved and favored by God. Right? God is gracious and has been merciful and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger in my life. And I am his child, his son, our daughter, who has been bought by the very blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on my behalf at the cross. And through faith, by grace and in Christ, I am his child. Things should go well for me, right? That's what I heard the preacher on TV say. If I would just trust in Jesus and send him my money, things would go well for me, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? That those who are loved and favored by God, things go well for them, things, bad things don't happen to them, but James doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't give any indication that that's, the tr- that's true, Right? James doesn't say that if you would just adopt this particular perspective of saying that Jesus is Lord and God like we saw last week and that you exist to serve him, not him existing to serve you, you exist to serve him, that he is Lord and God. If you will come to that realization and submit your lives to that reality, then everything's going to go well for you. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, when you come to see that Jesus is Lord and God and you say that I exist to serve him, he says, you're going to be heading right smack dab into the middle, into the heart of the wave as it continues to roll on throughout human history. James doesn't say if. James says when. And if you're living in the first century as a Christian, We saw this last week a little bit. If you're living in the first century as a Christian, where your faith is looked upon by many in the culture as a cult, right? that's kind of sprung out of Judaism. 
It's kind of how it was seen by many in James's day and time, that you were converting to Christianity from this pluralistic worldview that surrounds you, that you would have familial, that you would have economic, that you would have social, and that you would have uh, political disadvantage, and you would most certainly have trials of various kinds, wouldn't you? Absolutely. See, there's some of us who feel like, man, my faith in Jesus is kind of like insurance. It should protect, because we think insurance protects us from bad things happening to us, right? But listen, every time that I have signed the document for an insurance policy, another health insurance policy, there is no disclaimer in that policy that has a graduated pay scale, right? And the graduated pay scale is based on how much you want to pay to ensure that you don't have any fever-inducing infections, Right? You don't have insurance to prevent you from being sick. It doesn't work that way, does it? The reason that you have insurance is to provide for you in the midst of the sickness. That's what it's supposed to do anyway, provide for you in the midst of the sickness. Right? The insurance doesn't prevent you from being sick. It's supposed to provide for you in the midst of the infection and the treatment. And the same thing is true in our faith. Being loved and favored by God and saved from his eternal wrath and forgiven of our offense against him, granted a down payment of our internal inheritance and the indwelling spirit are not a guarantee of protection from trials. Rather, they're a provision in the midst of them. A provision in the midst of them. Trials are inevitable, James says. Now, what that means for you and I is this, is that as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, here's what it means. You can never say, but, 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 but I'm a Christian. This shouldn't happen to me. Right? This shouldn't happen to me. Not me. Really? You should never say that. We can't say that based on what James says. James says that anything that happens to any human who has ever lived can happen to any Christian. There is no exemption clause from trials. There isn't one. This means you should never come to Jesus expecting all of your troubles to go away. Because I, I've, I fear for many who hear that kind of message, whether it be on the radio or on television or in some churches across our land where people make promises that if you would just come to Jesus and trust in Jesus and love Jesus and treasure Jesus, then everything's going to work out well for you in this life. But based on what James says... That promise is a lie because trials are inevitable. Anything that can happen to anyone can happen to any Christian. James doesn't say if. He says when. When. When trials come. Now, what kind of trials does James have in mind? What kind of trials does James have in mind? James has in mind our trials. When he talks about our trials, he talks about our trials being diverse and complex. Our trials are diverse and complex. You notice the word that he uses in verse 2 when James says that we will encounter trials of various kinds. And the word translated in our English text, various kinds, is actually the same root word as variegated, right? If you look at a plant that has variegated leaves, what does it have? It's not a singular color on that leaf, is it? But rather there are multiple colors, right, and shades and hues, so James is saying that trials come in all shapes and sizes and colors and hues and different saturations of that color, right? There are diverse trials that you and I encounter in life. This means there's a variety of trials that we're going to experience as we live as God's people in this world. 
a variety of trials, kind of like a buffet, right? You go to a buffet, right, particularly a big massive, imagine a big massive buffet with cuisines from all around the world, and there's different dishes on all those buffet lines, and you're walking down the buffet line, and you, you know, you got this dish from you know, this particular uh, ethnic region, you got this dish from this particular ethnic region, you got this dish from this particular ethnic region, and you got all these dishes in this massive buffet, and James is saying, those are your trials. <laughs> They're very diverse. There is no singular vein that runs through every one of them. So you could be in a trial right now. You could be facing hardship right now that a person across the room has never experienced, but they could be encountering hardship or trial right now that you have never seen because they're absolutely diverse. But James is also saying, because word, this word literally means also there's a complexity to our trials. There's a complexity to them. Our trials are kind of like a 612-piece Lego set. All right, I'm familiar with these things. Right, my seven-year-old son loves putting together Legos. Okay? So it's like a 612-piece Lego set with no instruction manual okay? and a child that is screaming to have it put together. All right, so you're sitting there with all these pieces trying to figure out how all this stuff fits together. There's a complexity to it. And James says your trials are the same because if you ever notice that whenever physical illness strikes, it also comes with it emotional turmoil, doesn't it? And financial hardship and a spiritual battle to trust God in the midst of that. There's a complexity to our trials so that whenever we encounter one, it's not just this one issue that we're facing, whether it be a physical issue or a financial issue or an emotional issue or a spiritual issue, but they're all bound up together and intertwined. There's a complexity about them. There's a diversity and a complexity to our trials. James says, when you encounter trials that are very diverse and very complex... There's at least three kinds of trials that I want to reference this morning as we think about the diversity of these and the complexity of these trials that you and I encounter in life. And there are certain trials that you and I encounter that we are encounter because we are trying to manage life in a fallen world that is broken and marred by sin. You see, I think a, a reading of the Bible would never lead us to say this, that your particular trial or your particular suffering or your particular hardship is always related to a particular sin that you've committed. Right? If a, a thorough reading of the Bible would lead us to reject something like that because Jesus says in the Gospels whenever they bring the man who's born blind to him, he says, Who, whose sin caused this, Right? Was it his sin or his parents' sin, his grandparents' sin? There was somewhere in that generation or that genealogy that, that led to this day. And, and I think what Jesus says is, yeah, there was a part of his genealogy that led to this day. It's what happened thousands of years ago with his first parents back there in the garden. Because we live in a sin-stained, marred, and broken world. So some of our sicknesses... It's every sickness that we encounter is as a result of the fall. The hardship and pain that we encounter is because we live in a world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to work, the way that God designed it to work. And some of us, our trials are because we're trying to manage life, living as God's people among the peoples of the world. We're trying to manage life in a world that is not working and firing on all cylinders the way God designed it to. Some of you know that from sicknesses that you've had or, or illnesses or diagnoses that you've received or the strife in relational contexts that have arisen in, the, in your family because someone is greedy or because someone is right manipulative 
And it creates trial for you as you engage in that relationship. Or it creates trial for you as you suffer that hardship of that diagnosis. Or our work isn't quite as fulfilling as we would like it to be. Why? Because things don't work the way they're supposed to work in this world. So some of us have trials because we're trying to manage life in a fallen, broken world. Another set of trials that you might have is because you've stepped forward as God's people and sought to engage in ministry, right? And there are a set of trials that come with saying yes to Jesus whenever he calls you to step forward and exercise the gifts that he's given you for the sake of building his church. There's trials that are associated with that. Outside of the Bible, perhaps one of the most insightful reads that I have ever had my opportunity to get my hands on is, is, is the works of Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan pastor uh, back in the 1600s. And Richard Baxter, um, there's several quotes I'll read to you this morning from what he says with regards to the trials that are associated with ministry. And I would say these are for pastors who are, who are, who are charged with the task of preaching God's word, but they're also for people who would say, yes, I want to be used by God to greet people whenever they come in the doors. Or yes, I want to be used by God uh, to minister to teenagers in the life of our congregation or our community. Or yes, I want to be used by God to minister to the children of our church. Any form of ministry comes with these kinds of trials. Listen to what Baxter says about challenging people. That, are so, that come along with ministry. He says this, We must carry on our work with patience. We must bear with abuses and injuries from those whom we seek to do good. When we have studied for them and prayed for them and exhorted them and beseeched them with all earnestness and condescension. In other words, getting down on their level and giving them what we are able intended them as if they had been our children. We must look that many of them will requite us with scorn and hatred and contempt, and account us their enemies, because we tell them the truth. Now we must endure all this patiently, and must unweariedly hold on in doing good. Yet alas, when sinners reproach and slander us for our love, and are more ready to spit in our faces than to thank us for our advice. And this is where part that struck me. What heart risings will there be? And how will the remnants of the old Adam, pride and passion, struggle against the meekness and patience of the new man? Oh, how, and how sadly, he says, do many ministers come off under such trials. And listen, I will just be transparent with you this morning. This has been a trial for me as long as I've stood publicly to teach God's word. Because there have been some occasions where I would stand up and, and deliver God's word and teach God's word and teach the Bible and the, as, as a study and pray and prepare and, and try and exhort and call people to holiness. And afterwards, I would have some people come up with me and they'd give me a hug and they'd pat me on my back and they would say, I absolutely needed to hear that. And then you have some people come up to you afterwards and they say, how could you, Right? So some people pat you on the back and hug you, and other people want to punch you in the mouth. They heard the same words come out of your mouth with totally different responses. But notice what Baxter says. What heart risings do you experience then? When you're critiqued, when you're criticized, when people, you become the object of their scorn, all because you're trying to serve and love and give. He says, what rises up inside in those moments? Is it the old man? With pride and passion. I want to defend myself. 
Or is it the meekness and humility of the new man that's being conformed to the likeness of Christ? Listen, if you step forward into ministry, there's going to be people who are going to be challenging. There's also going to be the work that brings with it trial as well. Baxter goes on to say elsewhere, he says, Weaker gifts and graces may carry a man through a more even course of life that is not liable to so great trials. Smaller strength may serve for lighter works and burdens. But if you will venture on to the great undertakings of ministry, if you will lead on the troops of Christ against Satan and his followers, if you will engage yourselves against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, if you will undertake to rescue captive sinners out of the devil's paws, do not think that a heedless, careless course will accomplish so great a work as this. Baxter says, listen, there's going to be challenging people. There's going to be challenging the work. Because whenever you put your hands to the task of engaging in ministry that has meaning in the lives of people and eternal significance for them, he says, do not think that there is not an enemy who's going to be trying to combat you at every turn. And some of you know this. Because you've stepped forward and you've taken hold of something that you felt like God was calling you to. And it seemed like there's opposition and there's challenges at every, every step or every turn. What did you expect? It's not if, it's when. See, there are trials associated with managing life in a fallen world. There's trials associated with ministry and engaging in the work that God's given us. But there's also trials associated with our meaning. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Like meaning and mean. Yeah, that's pretty good, right? What, what do I mean by trials associated with our meaning? Here's what I'm saying. Listen, there's some of us in our particular culture, in our particular world, who are trying to find our meaning outside of the responsibilities that God has given us rather than inside of them. Right? See, there's some of us husbands and fathers who are trying to find our meaning and fulfillment in hunting or in fishing or in hobbies or in activities rather than trying to find our meaning inside the responsibilities of covenant faithfulness to our wives and rearing our children in the ways of God and providing for our families by working hard. So we say, that's not where I'm going to find my meaning. I'm going to find my meaning out here on my own little quest or adventure. There's some of us, perhaps wives, who feel the same. The daily mundane activities and tasks of caring for children. <laughs> There's got to be more to life than that, right? But perhaps even, even in the responsibilities that God has given us, there is a trial. Whether or not we will stay the course and remain faithful and find our meaning inside the responsibilities that God has given us and not look for it outside. There's a wrong, anything wrong with having hobbies or going hunting or doing some fishing every once in a while. I hope not. <laughs> but if you're looking for your fulfillment and significance and meaning outside of that, oh man. I think that's part of the reason why. The family unit is so messed up in our culture today. Because some of us aren't passing that trial or passing that test. Trials in managing life in a fallen world, trials in ministry, and trials related to meaning. But what does James say? How are we to respond to these trials? It's so the one command that he gives in the text. What does he say? 
He says this. He said, you should consider trials as an occasion for genuine joy. As an occasion for genuine joy. Now, the word that James uses when he says count it or consider it is a word that literally means to esteem, right? To appraise it as a, having a particular value. In other words, you look upon your trials, you've got to change the lenses that you're looking through them with. Right? So you're not looking at them as the world would esteem them, but you're looking at them as the word of God esteems them. And even though persecution, illness, poverty, accidents are in and of themselves not something to be joyful about, James says that you are to look at them as occasions for real, genuine, and authentic joy. Because you see, the, 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 the trick to that, though, is to appraise them or to esteem them or to consider them or to count them as more valuable than the world would consider or esteem or count or appraise them. Listen, some of you have stuff that's floating around your house, these little knickknacks, these little family heirlooms, right? And if you brought it to like the antique road show and you set it down on the table, they're going to tell you, go put that in a flea market bargain bin, right? That's what they're going to tell you. Why? Because it doesn't have any value to it whatsoever. But it's got value to you. Why? Because it belonged to your great, great, great grandmother and it's been passed down from generation to generation, right? And so there's got sentimental value, right, attached to that particular item because it's been something that's been in the family for generation after generation after generation. And that sentimental value makes it worth more to you than it is to anybody else around you, doesn't it? Some of you have items like that that you just can't bear the thought of getting rid of that because you know it would go for a dollar at a flea market if you tried to sell it to somebody. But it's got much more value that to you, so you hang on to it, even if it stays in a closet somewhere that no one else ever sees right? You hang on to it because of the sentimental value attached to it. And what James says here is this. He says, listen, your trials, the, the, the secret to counting and considering your trials as an occasion for genuine joy is that you have to know and want what they produce. Trials don't have sentimental value. They have sanctifying value. They have sanctifying value in our lives. And only those individuals who know that this hardship or this pain or this diagnosis or this layoff or this financial economic downturn is going to be a part of what God uses to conform us to the image of his son. Only those who know that and those who want to look like Jesus are going to look on the trial and say, that has more value to me than a flea market bargain bin as the world would esteem it. It doesn't have sentimental value for me. It has sanctifying value for me because I know that in that, God is going to be working to conform me to the image of his son. It, that's what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And in verse uh, it's in verse 3. He says this, the very first word of verse 3, for. Anytime you see that word for, it's a reason. Here's the reason, he says. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says it's the maturity that takes place as we walk through seasons of trial in our lives that would not come in any other way. 
I had the privilege of doing a wedding yesterday, uh, participating in a wedding, officiating a wedding for a, a good friend of mine. I've known him for several years now. He's a part of the ministry that formerly led the church I was at prior to this. And as I, I, I just, this thought was in my mind as I stood before he and his bride, right? And I stood there and read through some of the stuff that I was reading through, officiated the wedding, conducted the part, conducted part of the ceremony. And I thought, these guys have no idea. <laughs> what they're in for, right? As much as I could try and tell them and counsel them, they have no idea what they're in for, right? Here they are at the very outset with this great love, this feeling of, of, of emotional kind of infatuation for each other, which is a healthy thing and a good thing that has bound them together. But the only way that you'll really know whether or not that marriage is a good marriage is about 10 years from now or 12 years from now or 15 years from now. Why? Because it'll be tested. It'll be tested. They'll go through highs and lows together. They'll go through difficult seasons together. They'll question their affection for each other at times. And as they stay the course, and those trials will shape them. Listen, as I look at at my wife, who's sitting on the second row up here, 14 years ago, This May, whenever we said, I do, we had no idea what we were doing. And I can imagine that 14 years even from now, we'll look back today and say, we had no idea what we were doing. Because of the hardships that we face and the trials that we encounter, they begin to shape, they change. See, that's what James is saying here. These trials have a way of maturing us in the same way that time and hardship matures a relationship with a husband and wife, so also it matures a relationship between a God and his son or his daughter. And it does so in at least four ways. I'm going to close with these this morning. Four ways that trials will mature us. Right? And I, these are not original to me. I borrowed them from a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. But I think they're very significant ways in which trials shape us and they mature us. And the first one is this. The first way that trials will shape your faith and develop your faith is that trials will develop a genuine humility and dependence. And here's why. Because before you suffer and circumstances or people keep you from getting what we think, Think we need to make it. We are arrogant enough to think that we are self-sufficient. Right, before you hit that bump in the road and before you face opposition, you think that you are wise enough to figure it out. But whenever you encounter trials and God works in you through them, they develop a genuine humility and dependence. But because before our trials, we tend to think that we can handle everything that comes our way. And the people who can't, right, like those people who are just a little bit weaker than we are. We're a little more self-made than they are. We're a little more sufficient and have a higher aptitude than they do. We can figure things out better than they can. So they must be weaker than we are, and we're stronger than they are. So there's a sense of pride and puffed-upness about us, a sense of independence about us until we are right, blindsided by a trial that drives us to our knees in humility Independence upon God. Horatio Bonar, Horatius Bonar said it this way. He said, nothing so quickens prayer as trial. It sends us at once to our knees and shuts the door of our closet behind us. 
Because in our trials, we get on our knees, we cry out to God because we realize we are not sufficient and we can no longer just depend upon ourselves. But we have to have, we have to have him. I mean, humility and dependence. Secondly, trials develop a genuine compassion because before we suffer, we don't really relate to people in the depth of their pain. Listen, and Karen and I found this to be true. When Sarah was born on April 7th, 2011, and the doctors came in the next morning and diagnosed her with the birth defect that she had, and we, and, and we began the road of, of six surgeries in, over the course of 18 months in order to correct that. Listen, walking through that season of physical hardship for her, emotional and financial strain for us, it developed within me a compassion for families, for children who had needs that I never had before that. I might have looked upon them and said, I feel kind of bad for those folks, right, going through that. But now when I encounter someone who's got that kind of significant physical, emotional, financial strain, my heart hurts with them because I've been there. And trials develop this genuine compassion within us because until we are racked with some kind of pain and hardship in our own lives, we can never relate fully to the depth of another person's pain and hardship. Third, trials develop a genuine faith because before we suffer, there is a great potential that we are coming to God to use him rather than love and serve him. Right, until we suffer, until there's hardship in our lives, there's a good chance that we are coming to Jesus to have him serve us as opposed to us coming to love and serve him. In his book, The Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards says that one result of trials is that they move us from the fact of having faith to the sweetness and beauty of it. In other words, whenever we think about our faith, it becomes very sweet and beautiful for us. Listen to what he says. He says, true virtue never looks so lovely as when it is most oppressed, and the divine excellence of real Christianity is never demonstrated as clearly as when it faces trials. Because in trials, our faith, our faith is galvanized. Right? Because we are dipped into this molten hot zinc bath, right? And we come out more resilient, clinging to God. Not saying, God, you exist to serve me, but I exist to serve you. So our faith is refined in the midst of that process to a genuine faith that looks very sweet and beautiful. And fourthly, Trials develop a genuine freedom because only through suffering loss of what we think that we have to have to live can we realize that we don't really need it. Only whenever you have those things that you think you have to have to live get stripped away from you do you realize I can survive and live and even thrive without that. Right? Henry Skogel, another Puritan pastor, said this. He said, the trials that you have had, or the trials you have had of those things which the world dotes upon, they think they've got to have and they love and all their affection is driving towards it, have taught you to despise them. And you have found by experience that neither the endowments of nature nor the advantages of fortune are sufficient for happiness. That every rose hath its thorn. And there may be a worm at the foot of the fairest gourd, like in Jonah. 
If any earthly comforts have got too much of your heart, I think they have been your relations and your friends. In other words, the people that are closest to you at times. And the dearest of these are removed out of the world so that you must raise your mind toward heaven when you would think upon them. Thus God has provided that your heart may be loosed from the world and that he may not have any rival in your affections. Trials create a freedom because they at times strip away things that we think we have to have and we're so dependent upon. And only whenever they're taken away do we realize that all we really need, all we really need is him. Are you in the midst of a trial today? James says, count it joy. Count it joy. And the only way you can do that is if you know what it produces in you and it's if you want what it produces in you. And the only way you're going to want what it produces in you Whenever you see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father for you. He endured trial for you. And he's saying, count it joy that you might endure trial and look like him. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and mercy in our lives, confessing our dependence upon it, desiring the freedom that our hearts would be loosed from the things of this world, desiring the kind of faith that comes to you to love and serve you, desiring the kind of compassion that meets people in their depths of their pain because we ourselves have tasted of it. Desiring the kind of humility and dependence. Father, teach us that in order to have that kind of humility and dependence and that kind of faith and that kind of compassion and that kind of freedom, we cannot run away from the wave, but we must brace for it. And Father, may we brace for it by knowing what it will produce. And as we look to Jesus, may we want 